Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. hostess. Tonight we have a road trip with the panda. In 1995, a team of paranormal travel podcasters found an abandoned cub in the haunted Arctic. After some kick-ass paranormal training and his first alien kill, he was ready. He was ready. So, if ghosts, serial killers, or monsters in the dark got you scared, don't hesitate to call the Polar Bear. The Polar Bear. And Sam. And Sam. And Sam. <laughs> Slasher Sam's here. Woo. Red Panda Sam. <laughs> Red oh, Panda. that kind of works. That's kind of quick of the tongue. Sam. Red Panda okay. Sam. Let's do it. Red Panda Sam. Red Panda Sam. That's it. Labeled. So what was your first alien kill? Mm. Oh, that was my first episode. We did the aliens. Right? Was that? No. Your first episode was Ukraine. Oh, yeah, it was. But what was your but first? But we did have an alien episode. We did. Yes. I like to think that I'm the paranormal podcaster that found him as a baby. <laughs> Okay. There was Red Panda Sam. Looking I just want to be involved. I <laughs> <laughs> just want to be canon. Oh, Lord. So tonight we're going to actually talk about a topic that I uh, happened to see across a TikTok video. And am I the only one not watching TikTok? Yes. Yes. All Which right. is probably best. No, it's not. You have clearly. To, you, know, swallow you, your have you ever sat in, a, in your own bedroom in the pitch <laughs> black for an, an hour and a half going <laughs> <laughs> like wow, I didn't really do no. anything today. And you know who's gonna like it. this? You just send it to all your friends, and they wake up next morning. It's twenty four TikToks. That's my life right now. But I eighty nine. Yeah. Oh, Kisha sent me like a buttload once. I was like, holy <laughs> shit! But I've, I've done the same thing though. It's Anywho, so back to our <laughs> podcast episode about TikTok. TikTok. Right. So tonight we're actually gonna close out our paranormal travels from New Zealand with a tragedy that really just hurts my heart. So our story begins on an island located 48 kilometers north of the northern island of New Zealand, just off the shores of a town called Eastern Bay of Plenty. This island is actually the tip of a very large volcano, a very large active volcano, with most of the volcano being underwater. This volcano is a cone-shaped Stravo volcano style with a amphitheater crater. And to be very clear, a Strava volcano doesn't spill out lava when it erupts. It actually shoots out dirt, rock, basically natural debris with very 
very hot steam. Now, this volcano had been active for the last 100 to 200 years, and most recently, in the last couple of decades, it's been monitored by the GNA Science for Decades. This island goes by the name of Wakatari. Now, for the locals, it's not just a volcano out in the bay. They see it every day. They, they look out in the bay, and there it is. It's a basic fixture in their lives. But also, for many, many years, even before, let's say, the uh, white settlers came, the natives, the Maori people, would venture out to it, explore the island, and they would even host special ceremonies and other social gatherings on this particular island. But when the white settlers came, and eventually over time, everyone would eventually go out to this island on their boats and fish and explore, and never really thought twice about this island being dangerous. And part of the reason why was, even though it's an active volcano, it only erupted during the night or during bad weather on the island anyway. So they just never had any problems. In fact, there was actually a sulfur factory on the island that operated from the late 1800s to the early 1900s with people actually not only working on the island, but living 24 hours on the island. And per the locals' history regarding any type of deaths on the island prior to 2022, it was relatively low. Ten actually died in a mudslide while working on the factory when it was open, uh, operating in 1914. One died by suicide and one died by an accident. Now, in 1936, the island gets purchased by a gentleman by the name of George Raymond Buttle. Today, it's owned by his grandsons, Andrew James and Peter Buttle. And with this history, I think basically the locals, everyone just took for granted that this island was relatively safe. Now, in 1991, PJ Charter White Islands Tour began operating bona fide tours to the island after realizing there was actually a sincere interest from others, like foreigners, to check out the island. The company that was owned by Jenny and Peter Tate, that was a family, would be the sole company who had the authority to provide tours to the island via boat. And they started out small with like a six-person boat, and eventually they expanded to three large boats. Now, in 2017, they sell the company to Nagati Awa for $9 million after one of the three boats catches on fire, and three people had to be treated due to the injuries related to the fire. So they decided, you know, we'll just sell the company. We're done. And so they're the only boat tourists that go out there. However... The, the owners started to allow helicopter tours to go out to the island as well. So boat tours or helicopter tours, because that's the only way you can get to an island anyways. What? <laughs> I know, surprisingly. <laughs> For the most part. Now, this volcano was actually a major attraction to this area. So and the local town was Wakatani. And literally, people all over the world would come to the second island, the North Island of New Zealand, with the sole purpose of checking out this volcano. And we're talking anywhere from ten to 18,000 people per year, bringing in the local economy, about $4 million in tourist monies to Wakatani. You know, and again, they, this is where they're here for. They're here for this volcano. 
Now, some of these tourists actually began to include people from cruise ships. One such cruise ship was the Ovation of the Sea, which belonged to the Royal Caribbean Line. So this volcano is a major attraction. And the truth is, here in the United States, we have volcanoes that are major attractions as well. Yellowstone is a massive, it's a super volcano. That baby goes, we're all fucking gone. We have a beautiful one here in Northern California. Correct. (laughs) That gave us an earthquake two months ago. That rumbles our ground. We have a couple up here. Even in Hawaii. Parks. There's hikes right up to the crater. Mm -hmm. So having an active volcano as a tourist attraction is not unheard of. Because they can be active but dormant for decades. Correct. So, like I said, for Wakatani... This volcano and the tourists coming and going was just a major part of their life. Now, on December 3rd, 2019, there's actually a rather rough eruption, and the GNA puts out a warning that, and I'm quoting now, the volcano may be entering a period where eruptive activity is more likely than normal. There is an increase in tremors and gas releases. And they kind of had this rating of, like, Level one is dormant, no issues. Level two could potentially escalate to level three. Level three is an eruption, but we're not necessarily saying it's going to erupt. We're just saying it's kind of in that maybe zone. Pre-eruption. Correct. Potential pre-eruption, not guaranteed. But level three was eruption and, you know, kind of stay away. There's only three levels? Correct. This is their... The volcano maxes out quickly. I appreciate that. But again, you have to remember, the locals were actually accustomed to seeing it erupt, but it only erupted during bad weather when no one was on the island and or at night when nobody should be on the island. So none of this was uncommon. However, everything changes on December 9th, 2019 on a Monday. The tour company has two boats, like I mentioned, because the third one burnt down. The first boat, the Phoenix, heads out to White (laughs) Island. That's ironic. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. At 1020. It's a rough hour and a half ride to the island because you're, you know, you leave the bay, you get out into the ocean. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The second boat called the Tapapaya was waiting for tourists from the cruise ship Ovation of the Sea. Once they get loaded, they head out to Wakatari too. Now, how it works is they park the boats in like a little harbor of the island and the tourists will get on smaller raft-sized boats and these raft boats, the rafts putt-putt to this makeshift pier. And it's, the pier is like kind of this, my guess would be was the old sulfur pier when the factory was in operation. Mm -hmm. But either way, so... Once on the island, once everyone's off the boats, the guides will provide a brief safety speech, and then up they go up this, basically like this round walk to the, with the crater being the pinnacle portion of the walk. But the, the guides would point out various interesting spots on the island as they made this kind of circle to the crater and come around back down to the pier. Now, on this particular day, the four guides on the Tupapea were a, g- a gentleman by the name of Jake Milbank, Tiffany Mangi, 
Kelsey Waghorn, and Hayden Marshall. And believe it or not, both Jake and Tiffany are actually off this day, but were called in. And it was Jake's 19th birthday. So it was his birthday, so he wasn't supposed to be there. And Tiffany was actually supposed to spend the day with his family. Now, of the four, Kelsey and Hayden had been the guidest the longest. But with Hayden having done this for a solid 10 years, he had actually been like promoted to the skipper of the boats as well as a tour guide. But on this day, it was Hayden's 1,111th tour. Now... In addition to these two boats, at about the same time, there was a volcanic air tour guide by the name of Brian DePaw, who had just brought his tour from the mainland onto the island. In fact, this was his very first solo piloted tour, and he brought four German tourists on his 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 first tour. So there's three groups out there now? It's correct. Okay. The two boats and the helicopter tour. Now, just before 2 p.m., the tourists who were on the Phoenix get back on their tour boat and they're wrapping up their tour. About 2 p.m., the skipper of the Phoenix kind of jets the boat around so that the people on this boat can kind of see the, another a point of view of the volcano. Hmm. And as such, making it not only a parting shot and another view of the island, they can see the second group, the second boat, everyone on the crater, standing on the ridge of the crater. And again, this second group is Hayden, Kelsey, Jake, and Tiffany's group that are literally standing on the crater. So they're waving goodbye, you know. Then at 2.11 p.m., a silent billowing black plume comes shooting out of the crater and at first, the tourists take pictures because this is this massive moment until the tour guides realize what is happening and begin screaming for the tourists to start running. The guides realize that the volcano has really done the unthinkable. It has erupted. And remember what I said earlier, this is not a, a magma volcano. And it's not releasing lava Instead, it begins to release this very hot, unforgivable, unyielding steam and rock debris shooting up and falling on the tourists. This black plume will cover the entire island and the steam in the plume will reach anywhere from 200 to 300 degrees and will last for two minutes. There are 47 people on the island when Wakatari erupts. So everyone is literally running for the boat. Meanwhile, the skipper of the Phoenix is moving the boat away from the island while the remaining staff usher the tourists of the Phoenix inside the boat because the gases are coming their way. Now, of the 47 people on the island, three get exceptionally lucky. Brian, the helicopter pilot, was walking with two German tourists from his group, and they were all relatively close to the water, whereas the boats kind of did one-way tour. The helicopter tour kind of did the other way, so they were actually making their approach back towards the water when the volcano erupts. He tells them 
to run for the water and two of them follow him and they all three jump into the water and they remain as submerged as long as they can and they can see the sun go black, the sky go black. I mean, they're underwater. I mean, I don't even, I, I, I could not hold my breath for two minutes. That's not happening. So they remain in the water and when... According to Brian, when he starts to see the sun again is when he comes out. I would not have lasted that long. Once the eruption ends, I mean, everyone is down. That's when all the horrific screaming begins. And basically, just over the ticking of the minutes, the screaming begins to slowly die down. And basically, people are starting to die. Now, Kelsey would get up. And she's got at least 45%, 40 to 45% of burns on her. She gets up and she starts telling the people, the survivors, to follow her to the pier. Coming back to the pier is the Phoenix. Immediately, Paul Kingry, who is a crew member, grabs two crewmates and they get into the Phoenix raft and they start going back for the pier because... By this time, a group of survivors has managed to get to the pier. And as they're doing so, they're actually picking up people who had dived into the water, who are making their way to the, uh, the, to the second boat that's still in the harbor. And they're just picking people out of the water. They drop them off. They go back for the pier. At this point in time, Brian, the helicopter pilot, joins the effort as he, too, is helping people get into the inflatable and getting them back on the Phoenix. Now, they load as many people as possible, and some of the crew members of the Phoenix actually volunteer to go onto the island to look for more survivors. And you know they're all doing what they can. And about 2.45, the Phoenix takes off. It's loaded. But some of the crew members, like I said, they're still on the island. They're looking for survivors. Now, with the remaining crew jetting back to the mainland, the uninjured tourists of the Phoenix begin to help the burn victims. Now, to understand this horrific scene that is happening, people's skins are literally melted off. They're, I'm, you know, let me help you and their skin is falling on to the crew members' hands. So simply by touching the burn victims is not only agonizing, but it's almost as if doing more damage than good. So they basically, because the skin's falling off. So what the crew does and the tourists start doing, they start donating the clothes to wrap the victims, and they begin to pour water on the burns of the victims. You have to remember, this is a steam burn. Okay, this is not, they touch something hot. This is, steam burns are really fucking horrific. Now, one of the things that worked in the favor of the victims was that the boat's water tank was completely full. So they had ample water. And and so they're doing everything they can. People are screaming in pain. The boat is rocking because it's rough out there. And not only are they in pain, but some of them are actually starting to go into shock. And because of their injuries, they're starting to freeze because they have no skin to maintain the body heat. So basically, this is the worst fucking nightmare. Well, and shock will send you into 
almost a hypothermia type feeling. They start to get really cold when they go into shock. Absolutely. By now, the people from Wakatani, the mainland, have noticed that the volcano has erupted. One man in particular is Mark Law. Mark is the head pilot of the Wakatani-based helicopter operators, Canoe, I'm probably mispronouncing, Kahu, uh, New Zealand. He is actually driving when he sees the eruption. He gets on his phone and he confirms with GNS Science that an explosion and an eruption has happened and that that shit's going down. He then connects with a pilot by the name of Tim Barrow from Volcanic Air and he describes the scale of the eruption. They gear up because they're going over. Each of them fly their helicopters to the island. At the same time, rescue pilot John Fennell is in the air in a small fixed-wing aircraft near Wakatani. He's he's just flying because he has to keep up his flying hours. Mark reaches out to him because they can't relay information because cell phones don't work so well. So they connect with John Fennell to be the guy to relay the information. Mark also reaches out to co-pilots Jason Hill and Tom Story. Per my notes, Jason had just returned from a tour from the island, and Tom, who I believe had the day off because it was his birthday, was actually working on his house when he got the call. Jason and Tom meet up, they load up their helicopter, and they head over to the island. On, On the mainland, Coast Guard hears that there's an accident. I don't understand why there's some confusion here, but here's or knows there's some sort of accident. They literally swipe two paramedics thinking that's like a single person injury and they head towards the island. How they missed the eruption, I don't understand, but again. Well, I mean, they could have seen the eruption, but they didn't necessarily know that there were people on the island. Correct. Correct. Or it so, doesn't sound like it flows. So, like, what does that eruption look like once the pl- plume is gone and the steam dissipates? Would they be able to tell? No, I mean, you in all the videos that I saw, it's pretty obvious something happened. Okay. Okay, and we have to remember, they have seen it erupt because right. they've seen it erupt. It's just, they've just gotten lucky. You said it's commonplace to Correct. some extent. Okay. So, Coast Guard's going out. You have three helicopters going out. And the Coast Guard ends up meeting with the Phoenix, like halfway back. The paramedics are wholly and woefully unprepared because they think it's just an accident. You know, someone broke and broke their leg, whatever. Mm-hmm. They are wholly unprepared for the site that they are basically thrusted upon. Meanwhile, back at the island, you have the crew of the Phoenix loading up the Tepapeo boat, the second boat, and begin heading back. Left on the island is 20 people. Now, the helicopters are coming. Mark takes charge, and he tells the guys to fan out, look for survivors. So they've landed. Look for survivors, provide water, help put their masks on, and put them in what he calls a recovery position. I don't know what that means, but it means something to him. I think it's on your back, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds right. I think so. And to provide a very clear understanding, these guys are walking around in foot-deep ash. Debris is still flying around, and they themselves have to use masks to breathe. So Mark then relies the severity of the situation on the island to John Fennell, who relays this information to Search and Rescue. Search and Rescue respond by saying, we're en route. 
So Mark is like, okay, we need to provide comfort until search and rescue arrive. And then they wait and they wait and they wait. And that's when John Fennell gets word that search and rescue is not coming. They rerouted to the airport to get their helicopters better equipped to transport the burn victims. And that's where they sit. After hearing this, Mark then turns to his team and says to them, we got to bring him home. So they manage with the three helicopters to load up 12 people, leaving Tom's story behind to find anyone else and bring them comfort as they are dying. Now, Tom actually comes across Hayden, and he sees that Hayden is dead. He props him up. In fact, through his searching for the survivors, it becomes very obvious to Tom that both Hayden and Tiffany had survived the initial blast and were actually assisting others with the first aid kit that they, they had brought with them, but sadly they both ended up dying from their injuries. Back in the air, Jason, Mark, and Tim get told, you know, they're like, we're coming in. They get told, you need to come to the airport so that search and rescue can take them to the hospital. Mark's like, nope, not going to happen. He ignores this order, and he orders his guys to take the victims directly to the hospital, which is exactly what he does. Now, as both the Phoenix and the Tipipeo arrive back to Wakatani, the dock that these boats would come in normally is ready. They're lined up with ambulance. They got police. They got fire. They're ready to transport all of these victims from the boats onto the ambulances. Once the victims arrive at the hospital, the hospital actually reached out to the local families who knew their loved ones would be on the island because the burns were so severe even the hospital staff, the locals, had a hard time identifying some of these burned victims. But this was not the case with the people from the ovation of the sea. You have to remember, this was the second group. This primarily consists of the cruise line people. What the cruise line ends up doing is, my brother's on the boat. I'm on the island. They call the family members into a room and they have them sit and wait in that room for hours, keeping them in the dark about the volcano erupting. They eventually learn from family members who call them after seeing what happened on the news and family members calling them and saying, Hey, did you hear about uh, the volcano erupting? So a lot of people who from, for example, Australia, who were on that cruise, got family members calling them saying, is so-and-so okay? That's how they learn about the eruption. That's gross. So essentially, the cruise ship basically keeps the truth of the accident from the, from the families and as such keeps them from being with their loved ones and in the, some cases, the loved one's final moments. So instead of releasing them to go to the hospital to be with them, they're sitting in a waiting room. Now, all of these victims actually overwhelm the hospital. They're not prepared to receive the amount of victims that they receive and the types of injuries. So, and again, you have to remember, part of the problem was not only was this a steam eruption, but there's chemicals in that steam. So, the, so you know, they have these 
chemical burns that basically are life-threatening. And one of the major things that the hospital literally is short of is skin, skin grafts. So they're calling everybody they possibly can for donations of skin grafts, skin. So about two hours after the eruption, search and rescue decide to check out the island. And when they land on the island, they're actually not even equipped to be on the island. They bump into Tom. They can't breathe. And Tom's like, okay, well, here's a mask. (laughs) Because this is how prepared they are. And Tom relays all the information. There are, at this point in time, eight remaining victims. And unfortunately, these by victims, I mean perished victims. And search and rescue basically says, oh, well, we have no reason to be here. And the police can handle the dead bodies. And they leave. And they take Tom with him. And Tom agrees to leave, thinking the police will be there soon to bring in the remaining bodies. However, it takes four days for Defense Force, wearing bomb-diffusing gear, to return to the island. Sadly, on the third day, it had rained pretty hard, causing some flooding. So while they were able to recover six of the bodies, two bodies never get recovered. One of them was Winona Langford, a 17-year-old from Australia, and Hayden Marshall, the young man who had been the tour guide and loved this island for the last 10 years. And... That was Tom's greatest regret, was not making sure that they'd bring all the bodies home. And the sad part is when you see these videos, because I watched, I don't know, video after video. In fact, not that Netflix needs my help, but there is actually a very good documentary of this uh, tragedy on Netflix. You could see on their faces just the devastation, and the regret because they knew Hayden. They knew Hayden's family. And to know that he's never, his family's never going to have his body is devastating. Mark Guy did an excellent job getting the team together and getting everybody out. I mean, there was a lot of good humanity in that moment. Lots of people that were trying to help and do the right thing people that died trying to help other people. There were heroes out there that were looking for the signs and figuring out the right thing to do, and they jumped to action because they probably saved a lot more people. Good thing that boat turned around and came back because they could have just been like, later, we need to get out of here. This is a liability on us. They didn't do that. You had tour guides that were trained and tried to use their training in the last moments of their lives. Right. I mean, Jake actually survives. Jake Milbank survives. Kelsey survives. It's just unfortunate that Hayden and Tiffany don't. But they they were trying to help someone, you know. Correct. In their final moments of life, they were trying to provide aid and probably comfort to those who were just probably much as pain and agony as everyone else. What were the final numbers? There were how many people on the island when it erupted? So there was 47 people. That's what I thought. And then how many people were confirmed dead after that? Eight. Just eight? So more actually end up dying. Like in the hospital. In the hospital and whatnot. So there was 47. 
The two boats managed to grab 27, leaving 20 on the island. The helicopters, the three helicopters took 12, and then the remaining eight were either dying. Because that was the other thing, and I don't think I mentioned this. Tom came across people who were dying and sat with them until they had perished. So, I mean, this, this is unbelievable what he did for those people. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot of people that would have done that. So, Yeah, this article says that it was 22 people total died in that eruption. Right. So, But, I mean, even half of them surviving when only three of them were out of the eruption speaks volumes to the aid that they received from just Good Samaritans. Correct. People helping each other out. Which is amazing. My final thoughts is I think it's a beautiful thing that... There are so many people out there that knew that they could die. They didn't necessarily know what they were going into. They had a general idea, and they did it anyway. People that were suffering chose to help others. People that were free and clear chose to come back. I think that's a beautiful thing. Mother Nature's a bitch. And, you know, for them to come together and, you know, save more than half of them, I think that's pretty pretty amazing. Right. So I think that's my takeaway. I'm going to try to take away the positives. That was a good silver lining. Right. 